The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Sunday, October 23, 2022. Rios, get us out of this damn place! Hey everybody, this is your host Peter, with the 16th Digest of the second volume, covering Monday, October 17th through Friday, October 21st, 2022. Meanwhile, Monday, a follow-up. This is a follow-up taking a look at DC Sampler number one, uh, which I talked about last time around when I discussed Dick Giordano's Meanwhile column for the cover date of September 83. And in that segment, I talked about how the DC Sampler also had a Meanwhile column, which opened the sampler and which explained what it is and what the goal was. They were handing this out during conventions in the summer of 1983 as a way to spotlight their titles and their creative teams and their characters. Giordano talked about how this was comprised of 15 double-page spreads and they were using it as a way to create excitement for uh, the projects that were, or the titles that were already on the stands and maybe a few that were about to debut, or at least were relatively new. So I thought, you know what? Why not do a follow-up? I have all three of the samplers. Why not do a follow-up to that column and actually take a look at the first issue and, you know, give some thoughts? And that's exactly what I did. So um, this came out in the summer of 1983. This is the first sampler. I already talked about the Meanwhile column. And what I'm going to do is just talk about the first half of the sampler, and then I will follow it up in a later segment. I guess one of the reasons why I'm including it as part of a Meanwhile Monday segment is because it very much has the same goal that the column that Dick writes has. You know, it's it's a way to um, showcase projects, talk about things, that are down the road, and um, I might do this again. You know, if, if Dick has some commentary on something, maybe I'll, I'll give it a follow-up. And it's a way to read um, some of my comics, right? And I've read this sampler before. I've read it many, many, many times. As I said, I have all three. I think I have multiple copies of one or two of the issues. And if you've never seen them, they aren't necessarily hard to find, and you shouldn't really pay too much for them if you look online for issues, um, because they're not, they're not rare, basically. So don't, don't get fleeced and pay, you know, $20 for a comic that was given away for free. So the cover is by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano, and it features a whole bunch of DC characters standing around and on top of, um, machinery or columns of, of metal structures. And in an odd way, you know, my whole crisis kid brain, I'm thinking, wow, it almost looks like the monitor satellite uh, to some degree. It gives it that kind of vibe. And then you can see the DC bullet all over the cover in various places. Again, this is a promotional tool. So the characters on the cover include Arik, Son of Thunder, the New Teen Titans, Superman, Green Lantern, Omega Men, and Firestorm. Now, oddly, there's no Starfire on the cover. Um, On the back cover, we have members of the All-Star Squadron, 
Supergirl, Batman, Wonder Woman, Amethyst, Le some members of the Legion of Superheroes, Flash, and more Omega Men. They, the Omega Men, they're kind of like splitting the spine. Um, but yeah, kind of strange that there's no Starfire. I don't know if that has anything to do with like being quote unquote family friendly, but you know, is she any different than sort of the way Amethyst looks or whatever? Um, or Wonder Woman for that matter. <laughs> so yeah, uh, you know, fairly decent cover. Um, Ed Hannigan is always somebody that I, that I think about, you know, uh, he would be fun to do kind of like a spotlight on because, there are some really outstanding Ed Hannigan covers, and I guess that was his role at DC Comics, and I just haven't learned enough about him. I'm sure there are resources online. Uh, the inside cover has the masthead, has, you know, everybody who works for DC Comics at that time. Page one is Dick's Meanwhile, written specifically for this issue, and written because they needed something for page one so that all the other pages could be double page spreads. So here are my thoughts on the first eight double page spreads, starting with All-Star Squadron by Jerry Ordway, depicting a fight scene between the All-Star Squadron and members of the JSA and Dolores Winters, aka the Ultra Humanite, and members of her villain team. And then in the upper right corner, you see Infinity Inc. rushing in. And this is all in promotion for issue number 26 and annual two. Oddly enough, those are the first two issues that I would pick up for the title. Roy Thomas isn't mentioned in the pinup, but um, he would he is the writer of the series, obviously. It's it's a beautiful image. I mean, when I think of Earth 2, my Earth 2 is Jerry Ordway. And this is right in, in fact, a lot of these images are pulled uh, or promoting titles right as soon as I was picking up DC Comics. So last time I talked about, or one of the other digests, I talked about how I started reading comics in October of 1982. But it would take a little bit, you know, it would take a couple months until I was really jumping into a lot of uh, various titles. And it seems like right when this sampler hit, that's exactly where I was picking up many of these titles. So I'll talk about that as I go. But yeah, Earth 2, Jerry Ordway, I mean, even to this day, he occasionally is called in for Earth 2 stories or JSA stories or covers. It's a beautiful image. Uh, in terms of the sampler, it really is just one image, and Giordano talked about how they would try to bring in the creative teams and try to create new art for this sampler. So, you know, if you're someone looking at this, maybe some of the characters might be of interest, right? If, you, if you're not familiar with the JSA and you're seeing uh, Earth 2 versions of characters that you know, or maybe Infinity Inc. looks interesting to you, so uh, yeah. Really great image. Next up, we have an image for Superman and also Action Comics, DC Comics Presents, and Superboy, as well as the Dial H for Hero backup. This is by Gil Kane. This is less of a double page splash and more advertisement, right? Um, we have the creative teams lifts, listed here Carrie Bates and Kurt Swan on Superman. Wolfman and Kane on action, 
And it's an image of Superman flying, but then there are these panels depicting various things that are going on within the titles. For instance, we have Superman and Lois are currently split at this time. Clark and Lana are dating. We have a character named Justin Moore who is kind of taking over the Jimmy Olsen role. He's like the new young cub at the planet. And um, a panel for Perry White, a panel for the new versions of Lex Luthor and Brainiac 5. So uh, this promotion comes out, or this image is featuring um, stories again, right when I was picking up a lot of these titles. Um, Action Comics was up to 547 by this point. Superman 387, DC Comics Presents 61, Superboy 45. Um, the DC Comics Presents portion is spotlighting future guest stars such as Demon, Blackhawk, Amethyst, Santa Claus. There are two of them that they're spotlighting that they wouldn't actually appear in DC Comics Presents for another year or more until 1985, Batman and the Outsiders and Supergirl. And then in the bottom is Superboy sitting and just waving to us. And um, there are no creative teams listed for Superboy or Dial H for Hero, but just, just letting us know that the titles are there. So um, purely promotional for this image, but, you know, it's okay. It's it's set against a black background. And if you like Gil Kane art, you know, it certainly feels familiar. Next, we have Ariane Lord of Atlantis. The creative team is not listed, but this is by uh, Paul Kupperberg and Jan Dersima. Probably the first double-page spread to really take advantage of the sampler idea um, because there's a lot of paragraphs <laughs> giving the readers details on the cast or players as they call them. So we see Arion, we see Wind, Lady Chian, Mara, Garn Danuth, and others. Ariane is up to issue 11 at this time. I wouldn't start reading this until 1984, somewhere around maybe 19 or issue 20, 21. I've always meant to read this run. I think Ariane's place within the DC Universe post-crisis has been more compelling than pre-crisis, than the series itself. Um, you know, certainly with uh, regards to Power Girl and the appearances he makes in, you know, the Kurt Busiek Superman run and some other places. Um, but I did. I, I've always wanted to read this just to read it completely from the beginning. Um, but I haven't yet. Um, and the image itself is fine. It's a fine image. And it's interesting to note, you know, we started with a, a an off-brand title with All-Star Squadron. Then we got to Superman. And now we're dipping into another genre for DC with Sword and Sorcery with Arion. The next spread is for Omega Men, and it looks like they just pulled panels and artwork from the title itself. Uh, you know, I didn't really research if that's what they did. It says, The War is Over, But the Excitement Never Stops by Roger Sliffer, Todd Smith, Mike DiCarlo, edited by Marv Wolfman. And I wondered if they put his name there because uh, of being, you know, the co-creator, but also his name has a lot of clout for even in 1983, you know, before the crisis because of Titans. So we see members like Tigor and Oron, Nimbus, the Citadel. Omega Man was up to issue six at this time. And 
I didn't pick this series up new. I didn't pick it up off the shelf. This was a title when my sister took me to my very first comic book store in the early 80s. It was Hildebrand's, or maybe it was called Hildebrandt's. I can't remember. That was the guy's name, Ken, I think, uh, in Reading. They were having a sale on Omega Man back issues. So I swiped up a whole bunch of issues from that first year. I'm not certain where they were by that point. They might have been up to, you know, 10, 11, 12, somewhere around there. Eventually, I would collect all of the Omega Men. In fact, I think I've completed the run just within the past five or six, seven years. Um, they are a team that I really, really enjoy because it's a whole corner of the DC universe. It's a whole other part of, of DC space that somebody could do something with, you know? I still have Tom King's run to read and uh, a lot of their various appearances. This is a title that, you know, whenever I do the Tower podcast, which isn't often enough, it's a team that I'm going to focus on because they are um, not, they didn't spawn from the Titans universe, but because they spawned from Marv Wolfman, you know, I kind of want to include them. So um, this is an okay image, um, but again, it's another title that is not necessarily one of DC's bigger names, but it is a direct market title on Baxter paper, so I can see why they would want to push it. Next, we have Wonder Woman in a similar layout to the Arion spread, by, and this is by Don Heck, promoting issue number 308. The title was up to 307 at this point. That is the very first Wonder Woman issue I would pick up. This one is aimed right at the readers. It gives you the status quo of what's going on story-wise. Her lasso has been severed, her bracelet cracked, and she has to undergo the rule of love once more. And you can see guest stars like Black Canary, Elongated Man, some of the supporting casts like her mother, Steve Trevor, other Amazons, and there's even characters like these little gremlins because there was this odd gremlin subplot for a while. Yeah, kind of weird. Um, one panel in particular really stands out as an example of the creative team probably going real literal in the goal for what this sampler is supposed to do. So here's the blurb in this one panel. With sensitivity and respect, Dan Mishkin and Don Heck have been bringing us a new Wonder Woman, not a brusque departure from the compassionate Amazon, but an enriched portrayal. So I like that. Like, that's the first spread to really kind of talk about maybe some of the themes that are going on within the Wonder Woman title. And then there's a portion of the spread uh, on the right-hand side devoted to Huntress, since she was a backup tale in Wonder Woman at this time. Um, I like this spread. You know, it doesn't bowl me over art-wise, but I have to give it high marks for targeting the central theme of the sampler and the goals of trying to bring in readers. We then have Batman and the Outsiders with nods to both the Batman and Detective Comics titles. This is by Jim Aparo. This spread is great. It's the first two-page spread to be drawn like a short story across the two pages. So you have these panels up top, and then you have a full page, or you have the, the double spread image down below of the team. It works as promotion. It works as a two-page story. 
Uh, it works for both the solo titles and the team book. Um, this is, again, by Jim Aparo, written by Mike W. Barr, who really doesn't get enough credit for how good he was in the 80s in at DC and how good his Outsiders title was. That title was totally superheroes, totally 80s. It had a great mix of partnership and humor and seriousness. And it went a long way to expand the larger DC universe. It created a lot of new villains. I know there are some podcasts that cover the title, but it's a title that I can't wait to reread. And I love the Jim Aparo artwork. I mean, his his Batman is my Batman. Um I love how Aparo manages to show all of the abilities of the Outsiders in one panel, in one panel alone. It really is a great page. It's it's not flashy, it's not stylish, but it's smart. And, um, uh, you know, that Aparo artwork just fits with the DC Universe, so it's a really good fit for the sampler. To a degree, matching that same kind of energy, we have the next spread with Am- Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. Again, Dan Mishkin, Gary Cohn, Ernie Colon. Uh, it's uh, has a bunch of panels, you know, depicting what is going on in the world of Amethyst. It's beautifully drawn to look at, and there's a lot to wonder about it, right? If you dig in and you see all these characters and you're like, oh, wow, you know, who is that and who is this? Um, it lays out her backstory. It lays out the goal of, of her conflict. Um, really hits the fantasy and sorcery of it all. And you get characters, you get magic, you get the supporting cast, you get villains, you get fantasy creatures. And it's all framed in this border of jewelry um, that was drawn by George Perez. And that was the same framing device they used for the cover to issue four. Amethyst was up to issue five at this point. So the conflict is certainly, you know, ramping up and she just is so beautiful. I mean, look at her. She's all purple and blonde and just, you know, I love this series. I just love, 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 love it. Um, And certainly I can see why they would want to promote this one as well, because it was relatively new. Same with Batman and the Outsiders. And then finally, right here in the middle of the book, uh, we have the spread for The New Teen Titans by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. And as it says, Comicdom's number one fan favorite. I guess they had to put that little particular uh, uh, descriptor in there because I don't know what was Comicdom's number one seller. Maybe the X-Men, you know? Um but it says fan favorite, and certainly that I could see that. This spread is a little bit more like the Action Comics Superman one, where, show, where it is showing various snippets of, of what is happening or what is going to happen for each character. But it also is a, a spotlight like the Arion one as well. And it has a feel like the Batman and the Outsiders one because it's like, you know, these small panels up top and then a larger image across the bottom. Um, We have all of the eight members at this point, the original seven include and then including Tara as the eighth and the newest member. What I love about the panels above where Perez is spotlighting each character, they they are not in superhero uh, costumes. They're not in their traditional superhero wear. They are drawn in civilian clothes, which, you know, I say it all the time, but this team book is about 
Dick and Donna and and Gar and Vic and Wally. It is not about Kid Flash and Cyborg. You know what I mean? And this is a good example of that because you are seeing them just as they are themselves. And then across the bottom, you get a big superhero shot, including the tower, including all of that famous classic Perez rubble. Um, yeah, just a brilliantly designed um, image. I'm sure it's going to be my favorite uh, of the entire bunch, right? Of course, I'm biased, um, but it is just so beautiful. Now, across the top, you have all eight characters, and you have you know little descriptions about what's going on. And what I love about it is these panels are not very big, and yet Paris can fit so much, of course, into just one image, and it's amazing. So, um, and I got to give it up for Wolfman too, because he is talking about, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a serial, right? Like a movie serial where he's like, what's going to happen to this character? When is this character going to show up? Uh, where will this character's life, where will this character's life go, right? Like he's using all the question words, where, how, which, will, who, why, when, what, and none of them are repeated and um, it's very great. So you got Garfield with Steve Dayton and Quester the butler, Cyborg and his grandparents about ready to come into the book, Wally West and Francis Kane trying to decide if he should be a superhero or go back to college. You have Raven with Trigon in the background, Dick Grayson and the hint of his new identity in silhouette, which is awesome. Uh, Starfire and some Tamaran ships on the way to Earth, Terra and Deathstroke. And then you have Wonder Girl with uh, an image of her origin, Paradise Island, and a tease for her wedding to Terry Long. This description, this spread, I mean, this is the definitive look for these characters, you know. Um, Titans was, let's see, we were at issue 34, annual 1, 35, like around there, right on the heels of the big Terra reveal. And we are getting ready to kick off the fourth year of the title. So, you know, certainly year one was was kind of like the growth of this title. Year two um, helped to cement some new concepts and ramped it all up to the first annual. And then by year three, we were really kicking off. Certainly because of Terra, certainly because of things going on with Raven. And it was really year three where a lot of this these characters started to evolve and and things were going to happen to many of them. Um, and most of those things most of those things happened in year four, leading to, well, certainly leading to the Judas con contract, but also leading to issue number 50. So this is beautiful, beautiful spread. Um, and certainly uh, I could see people getting excited since this is a, a, an advertisement. I could see them getting excited for this group of characters. So, okay, we are going to pause there and I will pick up the back half of the book at another time. TV Tuesday, 
taking a look at the Ms. Marvel series on Disney+. Plus. I finally finished that series, and it, it goes to show you just where I am within my Marvel watching. Um, I've seen Werewolf by Night, but um, I haven't seen She-Hulk yet, so I will probably do a She-Hulk version, um, you know, in a couple digests. But Ms. Marvel, um, I have to say, this was completely charming. I know nothing of the comics. I haven't read a Ms. Marvel comic. I've maybe read her character within an issue of something, but this is all new to me, and it was uh, it was nice to learn about some things, and I know it's different than the comics, but, you know, learn about her family life, learn about some of her cast of character supporting characters. I, I imagine some of the... the um, larger world building stuff has to be pulled from the comics to some degree. Um, but by the end of it, I came across, maybe because I, I don't know anything about the character, completely charmed by the series. I, I really did. Um, the strengths of this series really comes down to the family aspect and the family itself. And I think uh, also that they were able to dip into some things that read uh, viewers aren't familiar with you know just just the culture of this family and some of the history that they are showing um i feel like uh well first off uh iman valani is she's really good i mean she's so new and yet she has to carry this entire series and there were moments that i felt okay that wasn't the strongest choice uh f- for the actor or maybe the director or the creative team didn't allow for maybe some other takes for a stronger choice about something. But when you put it all into play, how much dialogue that there is, how much screen time she has, that there is probably some minor stunt work that she has to do, it is very commendable. It's a performance that I think works, and she's uh, she's she's fun. She's fun on stage, or <laughs> not on stage. She's fun in the series. In contrast to someone like Matt Lintz, who plays Bruno, who is still annoying, and you know I didn't like him or his character in when he was on Walking Dead, and I just I just don't particularly care for his um, acting style and his little tiny little mouth (laughs) just something about his character and the way he looks just annoys me he doesn't give much emotion on his face and um uh i wanted i wanted something better from that character um but yeah the family is really great i think the mother the actress who plays the mother is so natural and doesn't feel like an actress at all uh you really get a sense of, of how much she cares for her daughter and and you know her being the matriarch of this of this family um all good stuff and then when you layer in the whole thing about partition and um the split between india and pakistan i mean you learned a little something not a lot but i certainly never knew about that and just like when i watched uh the hbo watchmen series and you got to learn about the tulsa riots this is a part of, you know, world history that I just had no idea about. And I have to give it to Marvel for allowing them to play within this culture, right? And this uh, and these world events. Because this isn't like Black Panther, where it's a whole other fictional African city that might be based on established African cultures, but it's still fictional, you know? Like, this is 
their culture and their religion and when they go to the mosque and they have certain celebrations like the wedding. I mean, there's stuff in here that you can't fake. You have to have people that are immersed in this culture so that you can really bring it out truthfully. And, and that's what they did. And I really like that. The series itself, um, it has a roadmap from, from the beginning to end. You can see where they want to go by the end and where they want to put this character. So sometimes it got a little heavy-handed along the way. And there are certain things that happen that you're like, okay, that's way too coincidental or or it's way too rushed. You know, like by the time we got to Pakistan and the Red Daggers, I was like, wait a minute, who are these people now? <laughs> like, why do they know so much about uh, Ms. Mar about Kamala? Like, why, how did they find her so quickly? You know, that felt a little expedient. Um, or the time travel episode. Like, why did it have to be Kamala who was the one who rescued her grandmother during the the last train out of out of India, you know, like why did it have to be her? I appreciated the flashback sequence, you know, we learned some things, but did it have to be her? Um she has way too much experience fighting or she's either very 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 lucky when she defends herself against the clandestine. I'm like, wait a minute. She's she's wielding her powers way too well for a, a young girl with very little experience they probably would have done a lot of damage, you know. So, But again, they just need to move the story along. You got damage control. I don't know why they are bad necessarily or why they are not on the up and up, you know. Um, I don't know. I think they probably could have used another organization within Marvel Universe, but I don't know if that's from the comics or not. Um, one aspect that I did like is how it makes me think about this series in terms of the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe. Certainly, there are connections between all of the devices, not only in Ms. Marvel, but in Shang-Chi and the Eternals. This has been talked about a lot online. It's all very similar to the Kang technology. Um, I even saw parallels to America Chavez in the latest Doctor Strange movie. When Kamala first activates her band and she kind of like does this backwards fall into another dimension and she also falls backwards when she goes through time, there was something very similar to the special effects that they used for America Chavez. Um, I even wonder if all of these um, various locations have something to do, have some connection maybe you know, for instance, as I said, you had Ms. Marvel, whatever that other dimension was, but yet she also um, was able to go through time. You have the clandestine wanting to get back to their dimension, the Noor or something like that. And then think about Shang-Chi's otherworldly place, his otherworldly location that he went to. Um, is all of this related are they all in the quantum verse that's what i'm thinking like when we get to the ant-man movie will we actually see some of these locations like is that how they're all connected and then um all the devices all the devices that we've been seeing so they all have similarities to the infinity gems you know the infinity gems controlled time space reality mind soul and power well, we saw Ms. Marvel go through time. 
America Chavez is basically going through reality. You could say the Shang-Chi rings are power. Um, Werewolf by Night, the Bloodstone, could that be soul? Maybe something in Moon Knight? Um, uh, He also dealt with time, but also space, right? When they were moving the when they were moving the, the the constellations and the stars, the Eternals could certainly fit in. So it feels like they're using the same power set, but yet these devices may not be as connected like the Infinity Gems. So I don't know. Um, and then we don't really know what Ms. Marvel is. Is she a superhuman? Is she a clandestine? Is she a mutant? You know, we have a lot of questions yet. Um, I have to imagine... Some of that will take place in the Marvel's movie, but then also in the multiverse saga. I feel like the multiverse saga is going to wind up being a spotlight for all these younger characters. Ms. Marvel, America Chavez, um, Ant-Man's daughter. There's going to be a moment where all of these characters uh, are going to come together um, because they're all new and they all are you know, maybe maybe Kate Bishop and, and whoever else they've introduced, maybe like the new Falcon. Um, I think they're going to have a moment, you know, where all this is going to come together. So, yeah, just completely charming, engaging. I had fun watching it. Um, I felt like everybody was acting uh, earnestly and, and honestly. Um, I liked all the creative elements with like the texting and the animation that was going on, you know, it is a comic book series, and I I want these things to be more than just TV shows. I want them to try to push the comic book narrative in one way or another. You know, I know people hated Ang Lee's Hulk, but at least he tried. He tried to emulate something within the comic book universe, and I feel like they did that here as well. So I hope they keep going. I did wind up watching all of the Groot shorts as well. They were cute. They were fine. You know, clearly Disney knows how to stuff their app with content for all ages. And because they have this app, they they really do have to think about different formats, different lengths, you know, TV shows, one shots like Werewolf by Night, little cartoon shorts. I mean, it makes sense. So there you go. Just some quick thoughts on Ms. Marvel. And as I mentioned, somewhere down the road, I will, once I finish it, I will talk about She-Hulk. Hi, I'm Jonah Loeb. You might know me from my work on games like Skyrim and Fallout. Well, today I've got something amazing to share with you. Marvel Anatomy, a scientific study of the superhuman. Written by Daniel Wallace and Mark Sumerak, illustrated by myself and Salim Busuru, and published by Insight Editions. This book is an unparalleled compendium of anatomical and biological information dedicated entirely to the Marvel Universe. Go beneath the bulletproof skin of the superhero to investigate just how they do what they do. Told from the perspective of Black Panther and his sister Shuri, Marvel Anatomy is a royal Wakandan dossier covering the physiological abilities of some of the most incredible beings from this galaxy and beyond. With over 230 pages of material covering over 60 heroes and villains, this book is very comprehensive. I had a blast working on this book. To show you the nanites in Iron Man's suit, or the shape-changing cells of Mystique, or the many rings of Groot, I combined real-world anatomical and biological research with Marvel lore and world-building to create images the likes of which no one has ever seen. Did you know that Venom can breathe through his tongue? Did you know that Skrulls have segmented bones to help them change shape? Did you know that MODOK's brain and skull have grown to fit his suit like a watermelon grown in a box? 
No one's ever seen this stuff. Never in one place and never like this. I am so excited to share this book with you. New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday recommendations for the week of October 19th, starting off, as the intro says, with the Marvel Anatomy, the scientific study of a superhuman hardcover from Insight, and this is for $85. It is expensive. There was a DC Comics version from 2018. It was a little cheaper. I think it was 50 bucks. And that had illustrations by Ming Doyle. So this is a follow-up from the same publishing company, but different creative team. Um, it reminds me of, you know, all the schematics that were done for the official handbooks of the Marvel Universe by Elliot R. Brown. And then Elliot Brown would also do some for DC. There was like this Iron Man one-shot. I think it was called Iron Manual that Elliot Brown did a lot of work for. I love that kind of stuff. And these anatomy books are kind of the same. Um, there's just something interesting about trying to put real-world applications to, um, to, to superheroes, but not necessarily in the comics themselves. You know, it's a coffee table book. And it's, it's fun to look at all these cutaway illustrations. So I wanted to give that a spotlight. From Tour Nightfire, we have Where Black Stars Rise graphic novel for $19.99 by Nadia Shamas and Marie Enger. Uh, this is about a therapist who recently immigrated to Brooklyn from Beirut and is treating her first patient who is schizophrenic. And the two get off to a rocky start as night terrors increase within the patient and a looming figure uh, at her bed creeps closer every night. Convinced that what she is experiencing is not a delusion, the patient known as Yasmin becomes obsessed with the book The King in Yellow. I love that. Uh, messages she finds in the book lead Yasmin to flee her home, seeking, seeking answers she can't find in therapy. Distraught over her patient's sudden appearance, uh, Dr. Amal attempts to retrace her patient's last steps and accidentally slips through dimensions, ending up in Carcosa, the king in Yellow's realm. Trapped and determined to find her way out, Dr. Amal enlists the help of a mysterious guide, but is he a friend or her tormentor? Spotlighting this because of the king in yellow, I mean, I love, love, love the first season of True Detective, and um, I watch it, I've probably seen it about four or five times now, and I always get the urge to watch it because the acting is so good, but the storyline is so creative and interesting, and this whole king in yellow thing, you know, um, just, I became uh, a little, like, aware, I became aware of it, and, and I'm always looking out for it, <laughs> I guess you could say, so when I saw this blurb, I was like, oh yeah, I gotta talk about that. Um, Deadly Neighborhood Spider-Man 105 from Marvel by Earl Taboo and Juan Ferreira and Raza on covers. It's a dark take on Spider-Man, and the only reason I'm spotlighting it is because it features the Demon Bear. I, I totally would have skipped this. You know, it's kind of like a, I'm assuming it's an imaginary tale or just kind of like a one-off story. But it has the Demon Bear, and you can see him on one of the alternate covers. And I love the Demon Bear from the New Mutants. So um, this was something that I was like, oh, I don't know if it's going to be any good, but it's, it's you know, that little hook has me. So um, 
This is $4.99. It's five-issue miniseries. Again, you know, might not be good, but I wanted to uh, just give it a little shout-out. And then lastly, we have from uh, Tomorrow's Publishing, Alter Ego 178, featuring Emil Gershwin, the artist of Starman, Spy Smasher, and other characters. It's just a look into DC's Golden Age past uh, and a look at a lot of unsung and often forgotten Golden Age uh, creators. Uh, and including, you know, especially including, um, we don't get a lot of talk about Starman as a character from the Golden Age, you know, in terms of those stories or the creators. So I just wanted to let people know that if you're a Starman fan, you should probably pick up Alter Ego 178. Normally, I've been trying to do reviews in this segment, but I decided to put them into Friday's segment for this week um, because, uh, well, you'll see. You'll see when I, when I get there, right? So I have a bunch of reviews, but they will be in another two segments. All right, those are your recommendations for the week of October 19th. The Justice League wouldn't help them, so Batman formed a new team. They are the Outsiders. We are the Outsiders. We are the Outsiders. Covering Mike W. Barr's series into its third year, where change is in the air. A new member joins, an original member leaves, old and new threats, and the deadliest man alive. Oh, and more puns. The Outcasters is a Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Look for us under the Right On Network. That's W-R-I-G-H-T on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or listen at our website, thehuntresspodcast.com, and follow us on Twitter at Bat Outcasters. Join the Outcasters, because to live outside the law, you must be honest. So this is the Thursday segment for this week, Thursday, October 20th, and I have a bunch of um, podcast notes here. This was prompted because Derek Coward of Comic Book Noise posted a new episode this week, October 18th, Comic Book Noise 872, and that had been on a you know small little hiatus there for a while. And Derek talks about Caliber Comics adaptation of Lovecraft's The Tomb, uh, the Sandman on Netflix, Paper Girls on Amazon Prime, etc. And, you know, I had already listened to that episode and then realized that October is also Derek's anniversary month for Comic Book Noise. It was released in 2005, so he is celebrating 17 years, one of the original pod class of uh, 2005, so then I was doing like a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of journey here and there at different podcasts. Uh, we have Marvel Noise. They just celebrated episode 400, uh, celebrating 15 years. Uh, that was also in October of 22, uh, 2022, hosted by Steve, Andrew, and Kevin, with a special appearance by the original host, David A. Price. Their first episode uh, actually was released in September September 19th, 2007. So they're celebrating 15 years. Um, there is another October 2005 anniversary. That would be for the Crank cast with Mike Norton and Chris Crank. They are still podcasting. Uh, the last episode 
that they released as of the time of this recording was on October 7th. So they are up to week 887. Now what they do is they just count the weeks, even if they don't put out an episode. So, um, you know, it'll jump from like week 887 to something, you know, 880, 881, but then they won't put out a podcast. So the next one will be called 883, etc. But they're still going strong all these many years. Uh, we have the Nerd Goggles podcast by MJ celebrating the 10th anniversary of that podcast back in August of 2022. That is up to issue 58, taking a look at A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, MJ does a lot of reviews on books, audiobooks, etc., music, and other things. Comic Addiction celebrated uh, 150 episodes for their current version of that podcast, I believe. I don't think it's a mix of all the different volumes. I can't remember. Um, that was released in October as well by Chris Parton and Ed Moore. Uh, we have Stephen Orr of Just Another Fanboy doing a series on the 30th anniversary of The Death of Superman. So Just Another Fanboy presents episode one, dropped on October 13th. This is a week-by-week examination of the event based on the issues as they come out per week. So the first episode is about Man of Steel 18, which was released on October 13th, 1992. And then Stephen is going in order week-by-week, whatever Superman book or whatever title came out per week. Uh, 30 years ago to celebrate um, the death of Superman. He's also looking for intros. Uh, So if you are someone who, you know, all you have to do is listen to the first couple episodes and you'll get an idea of what kind of intro he's looking for. All you have to do is ask, answer the question, where were you when Superman died? And Steven is heading to episode 300 for just another fanboy. Go check out the Comic Source podcast hosted by Jace. He just had a spotlight episode with writer J.M. DeMatteis on his new Kickstarter, uh, a whole bunch of books with the umbrella title of the D-Multiverse series, plus some other projects. So that was a cool interview. And then just to, you know, give a little self-promotion here, look for The Legion Project, episode 38, hosted by myself and with Eric of the Longbox Review Podcast. Um, That episode, Legion Project 38, if you combine our Legion Project episodes plus our Tales episodes, that will be episode 50, right in time for our fifth anniversary or around the time of our fifth anniversary as well. And that is wrapping up our Superman versus Superboy story arc from 1987 you know, finally giving the Legion of Superheroes um, some kind of definitive post-crisis origin story, quote-unquote definitive, right? Because that doesn't last long. So that is almost a four-hour podcast. That'll be released in my feed uh, soon enough. But yeah, that was a chunky episode. So go listen to that. All right. um, I'm sure I missed some things. You know, I was just doing kind of like a quick little research on Twitter and elsewhere. But um, yeah, so uh, I will continue to give you some recommendations and to spotlight some anniversaries. You know, some of these podcasts, 15 years, 17 years, I mean, way before uh, podcasting even became popular. And some of these people are still talking. So go give them a listen. 
Let's drop some comic book reviews here on the final segment for uh, this digest. This is Friday, October 21st, which also happens to be the premiere of the Black Adam movie. And that is not what I'm going to talk about. (laughs) I always said that I I would not believe that there was a Black Adam movie until I'm watching the end credits, right? So I'm going to have to um, put aside some time to watch that movie, and then I'll give my thoughts on a later digest. What I'm doing here in this segment is taking a look at the prequel comics released by DC under the title of Black Adam, The Justice Society Files. I was going to do this in the Wednesday segment, but I decided to make it its own segment since it coincided with the release of the Black Adam movie. So these were released once a month, four issues, through July to October, in the order of Hawkman, Cyclone, Adam Smasher, and Dr. Fate. So they are, you know, character introduction pieces for the four members of the Justice Society that are featured in Black Adam. And then each issue had a connected backup story featuring Adriana Tomas, who is also in the movie. I read them. Here are some of my thoughts. Um, I wanted to see if I could tell what bits of info would lead into the movie. Was there anything new or was there anything that might help, you know, further expand some of the things in the movie. Again, I haven't seen the movie yet, so I'm just, you know, going to keep a list of this stuff in my head. I can't guarantee that what I'm about to talk about doesn't have spoilers because I don't know. Again, these are prequels, so yeah, I don't know. Um, And I also don't know what these prequels are going to reveal about the movie. I don't know how much of this information really plays into it. So prequels are always a tricky thing, prequel comics, you know, um, they sometimes feel, um, a little empty or that there's clearly information that's held back. Sometimes the artwork, because it's kind of like, it's trying to straddle a line between likeness, but it's also a comic book and it doesn't want to be a direct likeness, but you know, maybe because of, I don't know, payment or whatever, but it also isn't, it's it's doesn't always feel like it's fully traditional comic art either. It's sort of like this middle ground, um, maybe because they're taking a look at storyboards, maybe because they're looking taking a look at movie um, design work and and sketch work and character designs. So they're always very sort of odd. And plus, it's a universe that we don't know, right? Like, like we are familiar with the characters, but we're not because we don't know how they fit into this new whatever, right? And I have to say these comics really, they, they kind of go along with all of those thoughts. You know, it's like reading them, I'm like, yep, these feel like prequel movie comics. It's sort of hard to explain, but I'm sure if you've read enough of them, you know what I mean. So overall, of the four uh, chapters, I probably enjoyed the Atom Smasher one the most. It's the closest to an origin story without actually being an origin. It layers in a little bit more about the Justice Society history, which I appreciated. Uh, We really have no idea how these younger characters got their abilities. Atom Smasher and Cyclone, you know, we don't get it from the comics. There There might be some small hints. I don't know if they're going to touch on those 
touch on that idea in the movie. Um, but yeah, for some reason, as an introductory piece, the Atom Smasher one stood out the, as being the most engaging. Um, probably that was the third chapter. Probably the fourth one, the Dr. Fate issue, um, I like that one because it's the last one, so it has the most uh, connectivity right into the movie, you know, which kind of you know makes sense. It's the final chapter. Uh, there was something about that one that I just, I was like, okay, that's good. Hawkman and Cyclone. Hawkman was first, Cyclone second. They were okay. You get a feel for their personalities, how these characters might fit into this new corner of the DC movie verse. But really, these chapters came across as kind of like lacking a little bit, sometimes in the quality, in the art, or sometimes just in the story, like what I talked about before. It was just like, it was, it was like teasing us with with a story and yet you can clearly see it as being a total side piece to whatever the main story is going to be um, they never really give you like too much information because that's what the movie is for um, yeah it was okay they, they were a little stiff for me the writer on all these issues was cabin scott uh, Scott Eaton was on the Hawkman issue, Maria Laura Sinapo was on Cyclone, Travis Mercer was on Adam Smasher, and Jesus Marino was on Dr. Fate. And you had um, Norm Rapmond on inks for Hawkman, Andrew Dalhouse on colors, and Rob Lay on Hawkman, um, Becca Carey on letters for Cyclone, Arif Prianto on colors. For Adam Smasher, John Calise on colors, Rob Lay again. Um, again, these these stories are fine. You know, the Hawkman one is basically a, a confrontation between a criminal named Craddock and Hawkman. And Craddock is working for Inner Gang, who factors into the Black Adam movie. And in this Avenger, in this adventure, he dies and becomes a ghost. And at one point, you can even see. Um, he becomes uh, the more traditional version of what he looks like as Gentleman Ghost, who is a villain, a longtime villain for Hawkman. And we get some, you know, we get some clues or some tidbits. You know, Hawkman and Dr. Fate know each other. There was a Justice Society in the past. Uh, there's some kind of otherworldly group trying to get rid of Hawkman. There's some kind of destroyer a mention of Eternium, right? This is all stuff that's going to factor into the movie. Uh, the Cyclone one was really just an adventure in her civilian identity, trying to find herself in her community. She is she has a little bit of hero worship for the Justice Society and Hawkman in particular. Of course, she comes across an adventure in her neighborhood. She meets Hawkman. She finds confidence and at the end, he invites her to be a member of the Justice Society. She is not in costume in, in this adventure. In Adam Smasher, as I mentioned, uh, it's kind of an origin story. It's his first mission going out trying to be a superhero in some kind of ragtag costume. And he's talking to Uncle Al, who is 70 years old and who was a member of the Justice Society. So we have a third member of whatever DC is going to call... Uh, or whatever DC is going to do with the original Justice Society lineup. You never see Al's face, but in a picture with Dr. Fate and Hawkman, he's wearing the same costume 
like Adam Smasher is wearing, which I was kind of like, no, that's that's a little disappointing. I wish it was something different. But again, you don't ever see his face, so I don't know what that means. And then the fourth one is just Dr. Fate uh, in his Tower of Fate all alone. And then he comes across some kids who bring up a demon who is connected uh, to the larger story within the Black Adam movie. And then Dr. Fate by the end realizes, okay, maybe I shouldn't be so alone and that's when he calls Hawkman and they form this new Justice Society. And at the end of this chapter, we get a splash page of all four members in costume from the movie as they are about to confront Black Adam. Throughout all these issues, we get some DC nuggets. You know, we get a mention of St. Rock Museum from Hawkman, uh, Nth Metal. There's something about other metals uh, being um, found throughout the, the world, such as kryptonite. Um, I almost got the notion, I was like, uh-oh, are they trying to do an Infinity Gems kind of thing? You got Eternium, you got kryptonite, you got Nth Metal, you got Cyborg's Prometheum, maybe Dr. Fate's helmet. I was like, oh boy, don't do that again. Um, Inner Gang is the big bad there is a mention of Doc, uh, Mr. Mannheim in one of these issues and I was kind of like, oh, I always hate when you know, when when we've seen a lot of these things in animation, we've it's like seeing Project Cadmus or Argus or, you know, even to a degree Amanda Waller. Like we've seen them in the cartoons. We've seen them in the Arrowverse on TV. Now we have to get them all into the movies. And I'm like, Ugh, can we can we really can we try to find something else? You know, there are so many organizations and there are so many supporting characters within the DC universe can we try something new like does it always have to be a retread of things we've already seen before the thing we learn about Cyclone her name is Maxine Hunkel uh, she was infected by nanites by a scientist but that's all we get that's all we get for whatever her origin story is for her power so I don't know if that'll come up within the movie there was a Batman reference in the Adam Smasher issue and Uncle Al says that he didn't know him. So that was, that was, you know, it makes sense. I mean, you know, there is a Batman in the DC universe. I just thought it was interesting that that was referenced. There were a couple nods in the Dr. Fate issue that reminded me of the old JSA series that began in late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, one of the lines was, this is why darkness will fall. That reminded me of the Prince of Darkness um, storyline. And the medallion... Um, that is in the backup tale with Ariana. Uh, she has that little medallion. It's the medallion for, or the symbols for Kondok. It has the three triangles merged together. That also is from a JSA storyline called Black Rain, which was somewhere in like the f issue number 50s. That would have been somewhere around 2004, and that was a story featuring Black Adam. And on his team was Adam Smasher, and a Hawkman character, it wasn't Hawkman, it was Northwind, who had, from the old Infinity Inc., who had been transformed into an appearance that looked like Alex Ross's um, Kingdom Come version. So, so a lot of little DC connections here and there within those four issues. So the backup tale is by Brian Q. Miller, Marco Santucci on art, Michael uh, Adier on colors and Rob Lay again on letters. I liked the art in this backup tale. I think I liked it more than the main features. There was something a little bit more comic book comic book like about it. 
And it's about Adriana and her son, Amon. Um, in the comics, they're brother and sister, which I prefer that angle better, but whatever. She's on the run from Inner Gang and Mr. Mannheim because she acquires a statuette that is uh, made of Eternium. So it's really just a story about her uh, trying to run from Inner Gang and trying, trying to run from some um, metahuman goons that are on her tail. And by the end, she connects her medallion that she's wearing around her neck to this statuette, and it gives her a map for some kind of crown that can be found in the Rock of Eternity. And that obviously is what is going to connect us to the movie. Uh, she's very skilled. She can fight. She feels like she's some kind of an adventurer, which is cool. Um, there's a mention of Markovia in this backup tale. And it doesn't really get too much deeper than that, other than, you know, we meet her brother, Karim, who was in the movie. And as I said, we meet her son as well. Um, is this, you know, is it all worth a read? Maybe, maybe, possibly. I like the backup tales, you know, like I said, I like the Adam Smasher one. I don't know. I mean, if you're on the DCU app uh, under the Ultra tier, you can read these issues if you are someone who, if you're subscribed to the DCU app and, and you don't mind waiting, you know, you could read them for free on there. Um, maybe get a collection. I'm, I'm assuming they're going to put all these in a collection. You know, you could, if you find it for cheap, great. If you find the issues for cheap, these are, these are the kind of issues that will wind up in back issue bins cheaply, I have to imagine. If you're someone, if you watch the movie and you wind up liking it, then sure, maybe you do want to read these issues just to kind of get an overview of what happened beforehand. But, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily um, mandatory, right? Again, these are prequel comics and, you know, they do them all the time. I remember they did them for Green Lantern. They did them for Superman Returns. I have to imagine there are others as well that I just, I don't remember. Uh, that could be a whole other podcast segment, right? <laughs> Taking a look at every Mar uh, DC movie adaptation, every DC prequel or Marvel or every kind of movie adaptation to see which ones are good, which ones are bad, which ones feel, you know, have that empty, uncanny valley kind of quality to it or whatever. So there you go. Those are my thoughts on those prequel comics. Let me know what you think of that or anything in this digest. Send me an email, peter at thedailyrios.com. Go visit the website, thedailyrios.com. Go visit the Daily Rios Instagram, which I haven't updated in a while. My Twitter, Peter J. Rios. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify so far. And if you have a podcast catcher or an app that you're like, you should really be on there, let me know. Uh, email me if you have any book club recommendations. Send me some voicemails if you want to want me to respond to anything that you are giving feedback on. This has been the Daily Rios episode 585 for Sunday, October 23rd, 2022. Trying to catch up. Talk to you soon. Nightlight. Oh my God! I had no idea. Oh, Toba. <laughs> you told them already. But, well, I only told Abu.